Okay. Uh, good morning and good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is the Ontolog Forum. It's July 12, year 2007, and we are featuring this 10th of the database and ontology mini-series today. Uh, our co-chair for the session is Dr. Matthew West from Shell International Petroleum, Guthy Stevens from Eli Lilly. So uh, let me pass the baton over to uh, Dr. Stevens. Susie? Thanks, Peter. So today we're very fortunate to have John Fowler um, giving the presentation on analogical reasoning with and about databases and knowledge bases. Um, John has got a, a very uh, long history in this space, so we're very fortunate to have him. So he spent 30 years working on research and development projects with IBM and is a co-founder of Bibermind Intelligence. He has a BSc in mathematics from MIT, an MA in applied mathematics from Harvard, and a PhD in computer science from Universität in Brussels. Um, and with that, I would like to hand over to John. Okay, thank you. So the uh, first uh, slide, well, after the title, is uh, Fundamental Problem. And this is the basic issue that we have with uh, uh, reasoning systems today. They're mostly based on deduction, which is an excellent method of reasoning. It's the foundation of our relational databases. It's the foundation of our expert systems. It's the foundation for theorem proving and mathematics and uh, computer science and everything. The advantage of it is that it's precise and predictable. Unfortunately, it is also brittle. And if everything's per perfect, deduction is also perfect. But unfortunately, we don't always have systems that are perfect. And whenever you have the slightest contradiction of any kind, just a tiny contradiction in the details, it can cause everything to collapse in a uh, uh, contradiction that makes everything provable and uh, basically, it ruins everything. And that's also basically the problem that you have with programs of any kind, that um, all of our programming languages, and in fact, all of our digital computers, are based on AND and OR and uh, logic circuits. And so uh, they all have essentially the same kind of problems. And then if you combine lots of systems interoperating over networks, any kind of a problem, any kind of an imperfection in any of them could cause any of them and all of them, the whole system, to collapse. Now, uh, the next slide on prospects for a universal ontology, this is uh, gets into the next point where we're building ontologies on top of And the uh, person who invented formal logics and uh, ontology, by the way, was Aristotle back in the 4th century B.C., and uh, there was a lot of further work that goes on. But uh, when we get to talking about universal schemes and universal ontologies, the big uh, push for that was in the 17th century. Leibniz was one of the uh, people you hear a great deal about, but also Descartes, Mersenne, Pascal, Newton, uh, big names in mathematics and physics were also in, uh, thought about it, talked about and discussed it. The person who did the most was John Wilkins, who had a very large ontology at the end of the uh, 17th century. In the 18th century, there were more such schemes, and one of the things I uh, like to cite is the Grand Academy of Lagado. If you haven't heard of that, you may have heard of it under the name of Gulliver's Travel. 
articles by Jonathan Swift, uh, who had uh, uh, this is one of the things in Chapter 5. And if you want to find uh, the uh, passage on that, just quote the Grand Academy of Legado, throw it into any search engine, and it will pop up as uh, Chapter 5 of Gulliver's Travels. And that's an excellent uh, uh, example, and uh, it would apply very well to uh, uh, modern things such as, uh, for example, any of these uh, research uh, centers such as the MIT AI Labs. You could imagine uh, if Jonathan Swift had visited the MIT AI Lab or any of these uh, research centers on artificial intelligence, he would have uh, written something very uh, clever, I'm sure, uh, along the same lines as the Grand Academy. And the point is they, that this was something that was so uh, known in those days that it was something that was a suitable ta a target for uh, uh, satire by Swift. In the 19th century, we had things like Roger's Thesaurus and the Oxford uh, OED. Uh, the 20th century, the big thing during was the uh, were the terminologies of all kinds of terminologies in practically every field. Uh, one of the most uh, precise and formal was in uh, chemistry. The American Chemical Society started their system of naming, which then became the International Naming Scheme for Chemistry. And uh, that is an excellent example of how uh, you can define a formal terminology that is pronounceable in ordinary language, but which maps a very precise formal structure, the graph structures of organic molecules. And uh, by the way, for anybody who's doing any kind of uh, work on graph theory, uh, the work in chemistry is perhaps the most advanced in methods of taking graphs and uh, linearizing them in a linear string so that it's not only uh, linear, but it's also pronounceable in ordinary language. Some of the organic molecules, of course, can get very, become very, very long strings, but there's a lot of work in that. In the 1960s, what they did was to computerize the various terminologies, and especially in medicine, one of them is uh, the uh, standardized nomenclature of pathology known as SNOP, which uh, then became SNOMED. And uh, these things evolved uh, and were computerized and were used very, very widely in uh, computer systems of all kinds. Some of the largest terminologies were developed for the uh, multilingual uh, vocabularies of the United Nations and uh, the European Union with long, long lists of uh, words and phrases to ensure that there were precise uh, formal equivalents in languages because uh, you had to be very, very sure that uh, – you didn't uh, can get any kinds of confusions in these political translations that uh, could cause an international incident of some kind. In the 1970s, there's the ANSI-SPARC conceptual schema, and last week uh, Chris Partridge discussed that, uh, which was an, a very uh, well-thought-out approach, but uh, of course it never really got into uh, a formal standard. Uh, Psych and WordNet came in with very large uh, ontologies and terminologies in the 1980s. Uh, then in the 1990s, 1991, there was a uh, uh, SRKB, that's the uh, Standard, uh, or no, Shareable Reusable Knowledge Base Project, and that led to uh, the development of uh, the KIF language in the Knowledge Interchange Format by uh, Mike Genezareth. And then Mike and I collaborated on bringing KIF and conceptual graphs into the ANSI standards areas, and they eventually became merged in with the ISO standards and eventually, after several iterations, became what's now uh, the final uh, draft international standard for logic. 
There was also another thing called the ISO conceptual schema, and that sort of was uh, put to sleep as a uh, as a technical report. Nothing further much came of that other than it's a nice report if anyone wants to look at it. And then, of course, there's the semantic web and many, many workshops on ontology during the 90s. During the 2000s, many more workshops, proposals, and unfortunately, there still isn't a consensus. There are good proposals, but no consensus on a standard of any kind. Uh, there's lots of informal terminologies and dictionaries that have been extremely successful. They're uh, mission-critical applications, and as I said, the, the uh, European Union and the United Nations depend on these things. But uh, the formal systems are still research projects. They may be uh, in, they have uh, percolated into various applications, and some have been successful, but none of them have become major uh, universal standards the way people had hoped. The next slide is, how do people avoid these problems that we have uh, with all of our computer systems? And the answer is, people don't always avoid them, but uh, there are safeguards. And uh, one thing is that people very seldom carry out long chains of deductions. And that's one way to avoid contradictions is if you don't bother uh, carrying out your deduction all the way. And then what happens is that uh, uh, you don't reach the uh, point of contradiction. And um, also, when you do have a, con uh, a conclusion that seems odd or contradictory, people check their facts and uh, they can ask a second opinion and uh, they can use their common sense. And basically what common sense is, uh, that means your accumulated background knowledge that you share with most other people, and sometimes it's called a sanity check just to make sure that you're not really going off the deep end. Another thing that's important is that people communicate by message passing. And message passing gives you a very loosely coupled kind of communication. That's much more loosely coupled than a uh, direct command. A command says directly do this with very precise instructions. And as everyone knows, you can give people precise instructions, and the likelihood that they'll follow them is slim to none. And uh, what happens is that uh, in managerial theory, they say the, a much stronger method of control is than, than giving direct orders is to ask questions. Because a question says, you could tell people to go off and do something, but if you want to find out what actually happened, you have to ask a question because that is what that is the closing the loop that really uh, determines what exactly happened. Not really necessarily exactly, but uh, at least you'll get a better handle on what actually happened than you would from a direct order. And uh, that's where you get explanations, questions, negotiations, and compromises. And those are the kinds of things that um, would be very nice if we could bring them into our computer systems. And I believe that that is really the solution to interoperability, is not to have a complete, precise, uh, for, uh, strict coupling. And the strict coupling idea was, by the way, the idea of CORBA, where you would have uh, programs that would be able to work in different languages and yet still do remote procedural calls where one program would know the methods and uh, procedures uh, of the others. Unfortunately, that creates a very tight coupling that is extremely difficult to implement, extremely error-prone, 
and it's very sensitive even to minor changes going from one uh, compiler uh, to another, even on the same computer, or even from one release of one compiler to the next release of exactly the same compiler. And uh, uh, tight coupling is a very error-prone approach. On the next slide, this uh, raises the uh, challenges for interoperable systems. And the greatest mistake of uh, any of these is to demand and expect perfection. It's okay to demand it as long as you don't expect anybody to actually provide it. And the simple point is that no two computer programs, even when they are called versions of exactly the same program, they are never really based on the identical axioms or specifications. And whenever you have two computers, you can be absolutely certain that the specifications that you have for them are going to be incomplete, incorrect, uh, most often they're unavailable, and in some cases there's no such thing. They're completely non-existent, and whatever you can dig up is probably uh, obsolete. And uh, another point is that whenever you have a large system, people have invested for any large corporation or government agency. There's, they've probably invested millions, even multi-millions, and in some cases billions of dollars in implementing this thing. And uh, they intended to recoup that investment over, say, a period of maybe 10 years, perhaps 20 years. But what usually happens is that these systems live, if they're successful, for a lot longer than planned, and usually maybe 20 years more than they planned. They plan a 10-year, perhaps, lifetime. They end up surviving for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, the IBM mainframes, for example, came out in 1964. That's 33 years ago when they're still going strong. There are uh, more... Uh, more, uh, they're not, IBM is, make, is not making as much money on them today as they used to, but they're still uh, selling more MIPS and more uh, CPUs than they ever did, although the CPUs now and the MIPS are cheaper, so they're not really getting them at, uh, as, much re uh, as much return on the investment from IBM, but it's still uh, very, very widely used. These things just don't, do not go away. And when you do have any such large system, the problem is that it's not going to go away, and all the other programs that are around it are going to uh, be uh, uh, designed so that they fit with it. So, for example, Amazon.com is one of these 500-pound gorillas, and every supplier and every vendor that wants to sell through Amazon must um, match their database schema. And it doesn't matter what their internal ontology is, they are required to have a database schema uh, translator that maps to the schema of uh, Amazon.com, or otherwise they're just not going to be able to sell through Amazon. And if you're in electronics or books or any of those things, you just cannot afford not to do that. And so the point is that it's absolutely essential that we have a migration path, a graceful migration path from any legacy system to any new system. And by legacy system, we mean anything that has been implemented, because as soon as it's implemented, it is a legacy, and um, the, uh, the planners are already on the drawing board designing the next one. And we are ne never going to get rid of legacy systems, so we must always assume that the norm is a family of incompatible legacy systems that we must interoperate with, and no matter how great our new ontology is going to be, we must recognize that it must fit in and be uh, interoperable with all of the existing ones. Otherwise, uh, 
it's just never going to be accepted. Okay, so the next uh, slide is a suggested solution. And my recommendation is to treat computers as if they're no better than humans. Some people tend to treat computers, they, they, they talk as if, well, we'll never be able to have our computers as intelligent as humans. But then on the other hand, they turn around and they assume that the computers are going to be superhuman and they are going to be perfect and uh, everything is going to work. And we know that that will not happen. Uh, we will never have all the systems having the same or similar ontologies. And as we know, most uh, systems that have been inherited won't have any explicit ontology. And, uh, uh, but the point is that we do not require uh, absolute agreement. When we're talking to other people, let's say that we're talking to uh, our colleagues at work or we're talking to uh, the people that we uh, 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 buy from at the grocery store or the people that uh, we see meet on the street, we never assume that we have to agree on every single detail. We don't have to assume that... Uh, we have the same religion, the same political party, the same worldview, the same uh, uh, education, speak, even speak the same language. At least we, in some cases, all we know are a few words of each other's language, and somehow we manage to get through. And we have to assume that that will be the norm for the interoperable computers, that they're going to communicate by message passing and dialogue and asking questions and negotiating and not by direct orders. Now, if you're lucky... You can give them a direct order. You can give, do a remote uh, procedural call. That's great if you can assume it and if the system, the remote system, has been designed with exactly the same ontology as your current system and you can ha make sure that all of the handshaking and uh, all of the negotiation has all been done, then maybe you can get them to work perfectly. But don't assume that's the norm. That's only an exception. It won't happen in general. And so what we must do is develop methods of negotiation, compromise, and voting. Uh, take the best uh, when you have multiple systems and they don't agree. Well, take the best three out of five or something like that. So we have to have reasoning methods that are flexible and robust. And strict deduction is great if you can do it, but we can't assume it will always happen. So here are methods of reasoning. Three methods of formal logic are deduction, induction, and abduction. Deduction and induction have been with us for a long time. Uh, Peirce, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce is the one who coined the term abduction. And in deduction, what you're doing is applying a general principle to infer some fact. So you're given a general principle like every bird flies and Tweety is a bird. You therefore infer Tweety flies. In induction, you assume a general pr uh, principle that in uh, subsumes many facts. You are given a lot of data, raw data like Tweety, Polly, and Hootie are birds. Fred is a bat. Tweety, Polly, Hootie fly, and also Fred flies. So we have lots of raw data. From that, we'll generalize and we'll say, okay, all of the birds we know happen to fly, so we'll assume every bird flies. Fred is a bat, but we only have one of those um, that we know about, so we're only going to say, well, we're not sure about Fred, so we'll just assume that every bird flies. And notice, by the way, um, this is the same assumption that we have back there with deduction. And it may be true that deduction is perfect if your assumptions are perfect, but um, the assumptions are derived, if the assumptions are derived by induction, uh, your deduction cannot be any better than your assumptions. So deduction can be perfect, but it's only perfect if you have an artificial subject, such as 
uh, mathematics or a computer system where you have total control over every bit in that system, then you may be able to make an a general principle that is absolutely true. But in the usual case, anything about the real world is always going to be uncertain because you never have total induction over everything. And then abduction is the guess. That is where you guess a hypothesis that explains some fact. So if you're given that every bird flies and Tweety flies, um, and then you guess that, well, maybe Tweety is a bird because you know that every bird flies and Tweety flies, therefore Tweety is a bird. But if you were given Fred, for example, you'd be wrong because Fred is a bat. So these are the kinds of problems that we have. Now, Peirce said uh, that besides the re these three types of reasoning, there's a fourth, which he called analogy, which combines aspects of the other three, but it cannot be adequately represented as a composite. Analogy is a single-step operation that has aspects of induction and abduction and deduction, and you're applying all three of those uh, processes in the process of analogy. Here are four views of an analogical reasoning, and uh, de logicians like to say that deduction is reasoning from first principles, and analogy is an unsound but interesting heuristic. Well, that may be true if you can, but as I just pointed out, it's only true if you can assume that your first principles are absolutely correct, and you can't always assume that. Psychologists, however, say that analogy is a much more fundamental mechanism in the brain and that language and reasoning depend very, very heavily on analogy. And uh, if we look at the theoretical approach, we can say that, well, analogy is a generic term for any kind of pattern matching, and deduction, induction, and abduction are very disciplined methods. They're special cases of analogy. And in computationally, Analogy is a very powerful and very flexible technique for reasoning, learning, and language processing, provided that you have a way of doing it efficiently. So the next slide, we have an example of an analogy. And this one, by the way, is taken from a uh, work that was done by Falkenheiner, uh, Forbes, and Gentner. They had developed uh, some analogy algorithms 20 years ago. Very nice algorithms, in fact, uh, uh, they're uh, widely used, have stimulated a lot of research on analogies, and this is one of their examples. And we uh, just took their data and put it into the VivoMind Analogy Engine, uh, VAE, and uh, uh, some, took some of their input data and their approaches, and also took data from other things like WordNet and Roger's Thesaurus and a lot of other things, translated them to conceptual graphs, which is the knowledge representation that's used under the covers in uh, the uh, VivoMind uh, analogy engine. And so here's an analogy. The question was, how is a cat like a car? <clears throat> and the system uh, checked all its data, and it came up with a number of different analogies, and it ranked them according to um, a semantic distance measure, which says which one gives us the closest match. And here's the one that came out best. It said, uh, a cat, if you ma uh, compare a cat to a car, the head of a cat is compared to the hood of a car the eye to a headlight, the cornea to a glass plate, the mouth to stomach to a fuel tank, bowel to combustion chamber, anus to exhaust pipe, skeleton to chassis, heart to engine, paw to wheel, and fur to paint. And this is actually uh, pretty interesting. It's a very interesting analogy that, uh, well, you can say, yeah, it's, you can sort of see how that was done. And on the next slide, this uh, shows the operations that are performed during the pattern matching. Now, these operations are 
essentially the same kinds of operations that were done with the uh, Falkenhayner approach. Their representation was based on a frame-based uh, representation, and what we're using is conceptual graphs, but uh, conceptual graphs are a that includes frames as a special case, so you can do essentially the same kind of stuff with them. And uh, basically what the pattern matcher does, start at the two, uh, follow these uh, trails. So it says, okay, here's the chain of uh, cat is linked to the relation has part to head to has part I, has part cornea. And then the car, the um, uh, has part matches the hood to the head and the headlight to the eye, and the cornea to the glass plate. And effectively what it's doing is building out chains of uh, inferences, going out, chains following out these chains in all these directions, and trying to find the best path, the best match. And the head and hood are both in the front. The eyes and headlights are related to light. Cornea and glass plate are transparent. The paws and wheels support the body, and there are four of each. And... Uh, then there's uh, approximate matching, see, uh, because sometimes you don't have an exact match in with the analogies, and so sometimes there are things in the way that it will skip over or it will sort of absorb those links. So, for example, on the path from a cat uh, to uh, from the uh, cat to the anus and the car to the exhaust pipe, there was this uh, uh, mouth that matched the fuel pipe, fuel cap, but then there was this esophagus that didn't match anything, and that was partly because the information about uh, the link between the fuel cap and the fuel tank, there was a supposed to be a, uh, uh, a pipe. There actually is a pipe that goes from the fuel cap to the tank, but it was not mentioned in the uh, data, and so the esophagus didn't have something to match it, and the fuel tank matched stomach, combustion chamber to bowel. Now, in the, uh, uh, the, in the uh, car, there was a muffler, that was mentioned. However, there was no muffler in the cat, so um, that wasn't mentioned in any of the available data. So it just said, well, from the combustion chamber, it just goes to the exhaust pipe. Now, again, this is an example where um, it could have been an error or it could have been missing data. And when you're given data of various kinds, of all kinds of sources, especially structured data, unstructured data, or you're given various kinds of ontologies, some of more detail than other than others, you're likely to have these kinds of things where um, you just happen to have missing information or one person just didn't consider this piece of information important and so was just missing in one um, implementation or one ontology. Okay, so the next slide, uh, we uh, look at the methods of uh, reasoning that are used in the analogy engine. And uh, the first method is matching concept types in order of, in, of uh, increasing semantic distance. So, in other words, the best possible match is when you have two nodes that have exactly the same concept types. The next best ma match is if you have a subtype matched to a supertype. Uh, next best is if you have siblings of the same supertype. And uh, then the uh, um, bottom line, the, the worst kind of match is if you have distant cousins, and if no matter how big your knowledge base is, uh, any two concepts are, are distant cousins. It's just that some might be so remotely linked that the, uh, the weight, uh, the semantic distance is so remote that it really is uh, not considered a very good match at all. And then the next thing that it also does is matching uh, subgraphs. And the ideal match is one where you have isomorphic subgraphs 
independent of the type labels. And if you can't have isomorphic subgraphs, then what you can do is merge adjacent nodes in order to make them isomorphic. So you make various kinds of adjustments. That's the kind of thing where you would take the esophagus, for example. It doesn't match anything, so you uh, merge it in and say, well, we can't uh, get an exact match. And these methods, uh, one and uh, two, those are used in the cat car example, and those are the ones that the uh, Falkenhainer, Forbes, and company were doing. And method number three is the one that uh, uses the meta-level mappings that can relate subgraphs even though they are not. Now, this is a very interesting one, and this is the kind of mapping that we need for uh, matching the uh, uh, the kind of mapping that you need in order to uh, match the uh, uh, do alignment of various kinds of ontologies. That is the meta-level kind of thing that we will need for uh, some of our applications. And the question is, why do we need to align ontologies? And, well, the answer is because we have so many different ones, and the likelihood of everybody using the same one, at least at present, is very small. The likelihood of everyone using the same one at some distant time in the future might be higher, but it's not likely to happen for a long time. And even if we do have a perfect ideal ontology that everybody uses for the new stuff, there's going to be old um, legacy systems that are going to be in a use at least for the next 40 to 50 years. They are not going to go away, and we're going to have to deal with them. Um, and we're going to have to deal with them. And that is, it's necessary in order to enable heterogeneous systems to communicate with one another we're going to have to have some way to match our messages. Okay. Now, the question is, how do you do it? And one of the things that I'd like to show is an example that uh, I tried with uh, Aaron Majumdar. Uh, he had uh, uh, been showing me this uh, wonderful uh, analogy engine that he developed that could do all kinds of wondrous things. So I says, well, okay, here's an example from my knowledge representation book. In Chapter 7, I had this example here. Uh, this is on slide number 13, title is Example of Different Ontologies. And there you have this um, uh, little structure there of three pyramids. They're holding up a uh, blue block. And then the blue block is supporting an orange uh, pyramid. And this structure, if you wanted to uh, describe that in, uh, according to different ontologies, you would get a different representation by uh, different database designers, different knowledge engineers, in fact, it's very unlikely that any two people would give you an absolutely identical ontology uh, in every respect down to the labeling. And uh, here, for example, is one English sentence that you might use uh, to explain it. Somebody might say, uh, describe that, the structure, to me. And one person might say, there's an, uh, a red pyramid A, a green pyramid B, and a yellow pyramid C that support a blue block D, which supports an orange pyramid E. Okay, there's an English sentence. Now, if uh, you ask two or three other people to explain it, um, they probably would generate different sentences in slightly different ways. And if you gave it to a uh, database uh, designer to implement a uh, relational database, they'd probably use a different one. And if you gave them an object-oriented database, they would use an even different representation. And the question is, if they're all describing the same physical object, you would hope that somehow all of those representations would have something in common and there, uh, that some kind of an analogy finder should be able to find an analogy that would map the different uh, representations. So here's a representation in a relational database. And there you have a uh, 
triadic relation called object and a dyadic relation called supports. The um, object relation has an identifier shape and color relation has a supporter and a supportee. And each row um, shows uh, that, in, uh, that object A is of shape pyramid, color red, and object A is a supporter of the support T, which is D. Now, if you translate a relational database into a graph, you can do so by taking every row of that relation, of, uh, of every relation, and mapping it into a um, what I call a star graph, which is a single relation node that is linked to uh, each of the objects represented uh, by the uh, words on that or the uh, each uh, item in that tuple. So there we have a triple A pyramid uh, red. You'd have an object relation that links A to pyramid to red. And on the next slide, we have a conceptual graph from a relational database, and it shows that. There we have, for every row of the uh, relational database, we have one of these ovals. We have, uh, for this object on the left, we have five uh, rows of database for the objects, and we have five ovals of labeled objects, and we have four uh, rows in the supports relation, and we have four ovals labeled supports. And there we have the shape pyramid. The objects relation has three arguments. The entity E is, has shape pyramid, and color orange. And we have, um, for every one of the blocks, we have one of these uh, little objects um, things, and we have then those support uh, relations that link them. Now we go to the English uh, sentence, and we translate that to a conceptual graph, and then we'll get different relations, and these are the relations that are typically used in linguistics called the thematic roles, such as theme, T-H-M-E, instrument, I-N-S-T, uh, then we have the attribute relation, A-T-T-R, and we have lots of those little relations there linking these concept nodes where we have pyramid E uh, has attribute orange. And then the support uh, is a verb that links the uh, – uh, there's a concept that represents that verb that links the theme, which is a pyramid E, and the instrument is the block D that does the supporting. And so we end up with a graph, very different shape, very different number of nodes. And the interesting point is that there is no – uh, node on this thing block that has exactly the same label as uh, any corresponding node in the uh, other uh, graph. So we don't have common labels, we don't have a common number of relations, a common number of uh, nodes, but yet they're representing the same structures. So therefore, they should somehow be analogous. And uh, I showed these two examples to Aaron, and he typed in the uh, both graphs into the linear, used the linear notation to type them in. And then he pushed the button, and lo and behold, uh, the system came up with the correct mapping. And on the next slide, uh, it says the two uh, conceptual graphs are very different. It lists the CG has uh, 15 concept nodes, eight relation nodes, etc. And uh, the uh, VivoMind Analogy Engine used method number three to find the mappings. And on the next slide, this is slide number 18, the transformations found by VAE. There you have two transformations. That the shape, uh, that the object's relation with shape relating shape to entity color, this gets mapped to an entity which has color, uh, has attribute colored. And then we have the other translator, translation that says an entity 
of themes, uh, which has uh, support, which has a theme entity and an instrument of some other entity. This gets mapped to an entity supports entity. Now, these two mappings uh, enable you to translate the one graph into the other graph and back again. You use five applications of a top uh, transformation and four applications of the bottom uh, transformation. And the amazing thing is that um, uh, the uh, analogy engine churned away uh, for a few seconds, and it churned a churn in a few seconds. It came right back and says, okay, here are the translations that I found, and here's how the two graphs map. And every node of one graph was mapped into every node of an, the other graph by means of these two translations. And uh, both of us were very uh, pleasantly surprised to see that it actually worked. Now, uh, the question is, what's the computational complexity? Now, the research by uh, Falkenheiner, Forbes, and Gettner, this is on the next slide on slide 19, they said that um, they proved a theorem that if you have a knowledge base of n graphs or n propositions or n frames, whatever representation you use to represent your knowledge, the time to find the best analogy to a graph G takes uh, time proportional to n cubed. Now, if your um, number of graphs is some small number like 10, n cubed is 1,000. You can do that very fast. If n is a billion, n cubed is an octillion, 10 to the 27. And uh, if you had a computer that could process, uh, uh, do a uh, process um, at one uh, microsecond per graph, uh, to process an octillion of them would take longer than the age of the universe. So uh, this indicates that if we're going to deal with the uh, billions of uh, units of data, the kind of thing that we have with the Internet, that polynomial algorithms are not good. Uh, in com computational complexity, they call a polynomial algorithm uh, tractable. But, if you're de but that's only if you're dealing with small numbers. If you're dealing with numbers in the billions, uh, anything with a polynomial, any polynomial with an exponent greater than one is hopeless. And uh, so what you're going to have to deal with is some way to improve the uh, performance if you are going to uh, pro use uh, analogy engines to process the Internet. Now, uh, there is this uh, solution called MACFAC, uh, which stands for many are called but few are chosen. And the approach there is to use a search method to narrow down the likely candidates from some large number, capital N, which might be a billion, down to a much smaller number, little n, which might be maybe 10 or maybe 20 or maybe 100. But at least we cannot have anything uh, enormous. If you're dealing with anything over 1,000, uh, it's hopeless. So we're going to have to use MACFAC to narrow our number down to some very small number. Now, a good search method should have an execution time that's proportional to log n. That is the... Uh, uh, time that's used for uh, uh, the search engines that uh, search the Internet. The t search time is proportional to the logarithm, and as we can see very well, they can deal with uh, billions of uh, uh, pages of the Internet, and they do so in a few seconds, very, very short time. And um, that means that um, what you get back from your search method should be some very small number of graphs, little n, which are the best candidates for your search. And you want to make sure that all of your relevant graphs are in 
that small set. In other words, you basically, you want, uh, they talk about recall and precision rates for your search. You want to make sure that your good graphs are there. And so the question is, what kind of search algorithms should have these properties? And uh, this is one of the things that we've been doing with the, uh, the VeoMind uh, work, and that is working on a variety of different algorithms for knowledge, which we call knowledge signatures. And that is an encoding of a conceptual graph that has the following properties. You want to encode the ontology of the concept and relation types. You want to encode the topology, that is a structural connectivity of the graph. And you would like this encoding to be independent of later additions and extensions to the ontology. You don't want to have to re-index the web just because somebody added uh, a few more entries to your ontology. It's okay if you might have to, if you, it's acceptable if you decide to do a total complete re-overhaul of your ontology, you might have to re-index the web, but you don't want to do re-index the web on a routine basis. That means you want to be able to update your ontology by making additions and extensions without having to So, and then you want to use this knowledge signature to determine a measure of semantic distance between graphs, and you want to use this uh, method for indexing the graph proportional to log. Uh, you want to do the indexing time and time n log n for building the index, and this is typical of what is uh, used for a lot, most of these uh, indexing methods for indexing the web. And then you want to uh, do the search in time that's log n. Now, encoding methods that have all of these properties are possible, but um, they are, have a, there's a lot of constraints on them, and you have to uh, search good and a uh, long time to find good ones, and there are lots of different variations, and we have been exploring uh, various of these uh, innovations. But the point is that there are uh, algorithms that have these properties, and the important point, though, is that you want to handle both the ontology, that means the uh, words that you use, and the topology, that means the connectivity of a graph. So that uh, the fact that uh, within a particular web page you happen to be using um, a, uh, a cat and a dog, uh, that doesn't tell you anything about how the cat and the dog are related. You need to have uh, the structural connectivity that tells you how they're related. That all must be encoded in the knowledge signature. Now, there's the criticisms of logical deduction. I already mentioned some of those, and uh, I want to get through some of these quickly so that uh, Aaron has a chance to uh, tell you more about these things. But the point is that induction, the... Uh, Goodness of deduction depends very much on the goodness of your induction. Case-based reasoning is a very important kind of reasoning that people use with, um, uh, for which analogy finding is very good. And uh, this is something that uh, we have applied in some of our applications. And one of the applications that we have here is a, uh, oh, this, it makes the point that logic is a disciplined use of analogies. And here's an application of case-based reasoning, which I'm not going to go through in detail. I think you can look at this by yourself, because this is a fairly understandable one. This is one that uh, uh, we used before, and I'm not going to go through in detail. It was one that we're uh, apply applying this to evaluating free-form uh, answers in English sentences to a, uh, a math, uh, to, uh, when student answers to math questions. I'm not going to go through this in detail. You can look at this yourself. And uh, what I am going to talk about is this legacy reengineering problem, because this is a very interesting application, and this is one which was the first 
major, major application to which VivoMind Analogy Engine was applied. This was an older implementation of it, and uh, it did amazingly well. This was a yeah. uh, applied to uh, an application where the uh, company had uh, one and a half million uh, lines of COBOL, several hundred uh, scripts in job control language. This is the IBM uh, uh, JCL, which is used for the uh, 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 for the mainframes, and they had a hundred megabytes of English documentation. These are reports, manuals, emails, Lotus Notes, HTML, oral communications, transcribed to uh, notes, and all kinds of stuff. John, job can you tell us what slide number you're on? Oh, excuse me. What slide? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. This is a slide that's titled "Legacy Reengineering." And it's slide number 28. If you're following at the bottom of uh, your, on your Adobe screen, it's at the bottom. It says it's slide number 28 of 35. It's legacy reengineering. And uh, on the previous slide, this was the one that was using VAE to evaluate student answers. That's the that's the example I'm skipping here. Now, this was an example. The problem that uh, you, the company uh, had wanted to analyze the English documentation to determine the discrepancies between the documentation and the implementation. They wanted to develop an English glossary of all the terms and the, all their changes over the years. They wanted to uh, develop a data dictionary, data flow diagrams, process architecture diagrams, system context diagrams. They wanted to represent these in UML form. They wanted to have English captions on those diagrams uh, taken from the information derived from the English documentation and from the COBOL and the JCL. Now, this was an application that um, they asked uh, uh, one of these mainline uh, uh, consulting uh, companies to look at, and uh, they gave an estimate that said, well, to read all of that documentation and to analyze all that code and to relate the documentation to the code and to produce all of that data would take 40 people two years or 80-person years and then you use their usual markup and everything like that, it ends up to be maybe something like $10 million. Um, that was more than they wanted to spend. And so they asked Ed Jordan uh, a consult, uh, as a consultant to uh, look at this and say, if, could he give a special to see if this was a reasonable estimate or if they could do something better. And Ed had suggested two of his colleagues, namely Aaron Majumdar and uh, Andre Leclerc, who came in and did this application for, as a study project, just as a study project. And, uh, by the way, if you want to see what the uh, English looks like, here is a sample documentation. This is what it looks like. A mixture of English words, computer jargon, and names of programs, files, and COBOL variables. And there you have it, things like um, you have COBOL program bill CRUA, you have billing history production run. This file is used instead of the history file for time efficiency and all kinds of things like uh, non-standard syntax like 32-loss on unbilled, 0-internal uh, billable. These are the kinds of things that you have in your text all the time. And somehow you have to this English and to analyze the COBOL and relate all these things to one another. So in the next sample, is the simplification that Aaron and uh, Andre managed to do. And the uh, the, uh, the uh, problem of trying to analyze English specifications and mapping the results to an executable computer COBOL program is extremely difficult. And the major problem is that um, uh, you've got 
you, you just don't have the context in which to interpret those English sentences. You don't know what is being, is being done, and you don't know what to do with the information. And a much, much easier problem, and that, uh, the one that um, Aaron and Andre adopted, was to start with the COBOL and the JCL. These are formal languages that you can analyze precisely, and you can map those to conceptual graphs. Once you have those conceptual graphs, uh, already done, you can then use those conceptual graphs to interpret the English documentation. And so what the system would simply do is to scan through any uh, sentence, and if it found a sentence that had no reference at all, no match whatever to any of the uh, uh, terminology, any of the graphs that it already had analyzed from COBOL and JCL, it would just ignore it because it would say, well, this is irrelevant. We have no idea of what to do with it. But if we do find uh, sentences that do match, uh, conceptual graphs that do map things from the COBOL and JCL, then those are the ones that we want to apply the analogy engine to look at. And on the next slide, it turns out that they were able to finish the job in eight weeks' time. In the customization, they design and logistics. They did some additional programming for the I.O. formats. They wanted, they had to uh, download from 300 computers scattered all across North America. They had to download the data um, onto this uh, server run by uh, uh, 750 megahertz Pentium 3. This was a few years ago when people still used Pentium 3s. It was running 24 hours a day, seven days a week for uh, uh, three weeks, and it was matching. The vehicle mind would handle the matches with strong evidence, namely a close semantic distance, and matches with weak evidence were confirmed or corrected by Majumdar and Leclerc. And originally they had a, they had a rather uh, close tolerance uh, because they wanted to check everything to see what the thing was doing. But after a while they discovered that the system was very, very accurately matching it and they just uh, widened the tolerance up to the point where the overwhelming majority of the matches were being done automatically and only on rare occasions did it have to ring a bell and invoke uh, Aaron and uh, Andre to look at it. After they did that, in one week time, they uh, uh, produced a CD-ROM with integrated views of the results. They had the glossary, the data dictionary, the data flow diagrams, the process architecture, the system context diagram. For the glossary, what they simply did is pull out sentences that came from the documentation that seemed to be relevant because they were relevant sentences that matched what was uh, COBOL's programs, they pulled them up and put them into the glossary. Data from the COBOL and JCL they put into the data dictionary and they cross-referenced it to the glossary. And, uh, they, they, and essentially in eight weeks' time, with two people in eight weeks, they finished what the, uh, what the uh, consulting firm estimated would require 80-person years. And uh, they found contradictions. Like uh, from the uh, documentation, they just dis discovered that um, uh, every employee is a human being and no human being is a computer. But from the uh, COBOL program, they discovered some employees are computers. And where they discovered that was from a quick patch in 1979, in the next slide, that some COBOL programmer had made a quick patch that um, two computers were used to assist the human consultants but there was no provision to bill for computer time, so some programmer uh, just named the computers Bob and Sally and assigned them employee IDs and put them on the payroll and billed them for the uh, time. 
And, uh, of course, they assumed that, that after the project was finished, they would just uh, remove this patch and uh, uh, everything would be okay. But, of course, after you finish a project, nobody remembers in between. And for more than 20 years, Bob and Sally were issued payroll checks, but they never cashed them. And uh, when VAE went through this uh, data, they discovered that there were these two, quote, employees that uh, uh, the um, company had no idea that they were there. Now, they didn't lose any actual money because it just issued these payroll checks that just never were cashed. But it was an amazing sort of thing. Uh, there are other mismatches, and I'm not going to go through this in detail, but I do want to go through the conclusions and uh, then let Aaron say some comments about this. And the conclusions are that deductive methods are good when there are widely applicable theories um, that can handle them. They're, these are good, solid, precise mathematical theories, the kind you have in physics and engineering and in accounting. But you don't have them in other fields. And when you don't have good, reliable theories, an analogical reasoning is very important. And even if you do have good theories, it's inevitable that you're likely to have exceptions, error conditions, and those are the cases where you, an analogical reasoner can come in and supplement the uh, theoretical handling, the deductive system, for handling the exceptions. And as I illustrated with the uh, uh, Mind analogy engine for the uh, uh, aligning databases and this legacy reengineering project, it can be extremely valuable to, at the meta level, to find mappings between different theories and ontologies. And, uh, also, and this uh, semantic distance measure can also be used as part of the uh, technology. The semantic distance measure and the, and the analogy technology can be used to derive an ontology when there is no ontology, as in for this uh, example with the legacy reengineering, it was able to analyze the English and extract the information from the English to derive your data dictionary and your glossary and uh, an ontology that you can begin with working with from your legacy code. And uh, I think at this point uh, I should let Aaron say some comments since he's the guy who actually uh, did this work and uh, he can give you more insights into some of these things. And uh, also we should open it up to more questions. So I think that um, if people have questions, I think you press 1-1 one, one, and then uh, uh, Peter or Susie will be able to monitor uh, who's on the line and um, uh, you can queue up and for questions. So Aaron, do you have anything? You can uh, press star 3 to activate uh, your phone. Hello? I'm, I'm not sure if I... Hello? Yeah, we can Hello? hear you, Aaron. Uh, oh, you... Everybody can hear me? Yes, we hear you. Okay, great. Um, I think that uh, in, when we were first doing this work, um, the critical uh, challenges that we faced were, at the beginnings, having a sufficient number of semantic distance metrics or ways of computing distances between structures. Uh, because uh, we'd only started out at the at the beginning with about eight or nine uh, different ways of doing it. We ended up with uh, three, four times that amount uh, as we got into the project. So I think one of the things that we had as lessons learned is that you can't look at analogies from only one specific viewpoint, whether it's mathematical 
or, or uh, equational or you, you have to have some diversity in the way that you look at something. And uh, that was my only sort of real comment to add to this. Well, how about uh, questions from the um, audience? I'm sure a lot of people have uh, many questions that either Aaron or I could uh, help uh, answer or clarify or explain or whatever. Uh, P uh, Peter, do you have any questions on your board? Oh, so far, I don't have uh, people's hands up yet. Let me repeat the process. If you want to line up uh, for question, please press 1 one now keypad and uh, we generally would be able to recognize you uh, by maybe asking people from certain area codes and uh, when when you're recognized then uh, start uh, testing to make sure you can be heard and then we can go on so I've got one hand uh, from uh, Heather Pfeiffer. So uh, go ahead, Heather. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we hear you. We can hear you. Uh, but okay. you have to Aaron? speak up, please. Aaron, there's questions for Aaron, and it has to do with your semantic distances. Did you look at Corellus? We sort of missed the last part of your question. Could you repeat that again? For semantic distances, did you look at the work of Gerard Ellis? Oh, Gerard Ellis has work on semantic distances. Yes, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, Aaron uh, was aware of that. Um, uh, Aaron, do you have any comment on how uh, what uh, your uh, algorithms uh, are uh, compared with uh, Gerard's algorithms? Um, the best that I can say is that his uh, approach to building a library of primitives and developing a, a tree of these primitives to represent a larger graph um, is similar in one way but very different in another in that we don't map the structures to, to the primitives to trees. We tend to create continuous space representation. So we use geometry uh, as, an, as a um, method to encode the graph. So we use, um, you know, points in space would be an example. You know, to, you, you, you can take graphs and use various methods and uh, populate, um, let's just call it a vector space for now, uh, and then you can compare graphs based on that. Um, there are many intricacies and details to that, which, which probably is not a good idea to get in on such a short notice, but uh, the essential idea that uh, of taking graphs, very large graphs, and breaking them up into manageable pieces is the common uh, invariant between what uh, Gerard did and what we're doing. Okay. Thank you. John, obviously, uh, this uh, solution uh, is good for certain classes of, uh, prob uh, of problems and not others. Could you sort of generalize on, I mean, besides, let's say, uh, a better search, uh, the class of problems that this 
your your VAE engine would would be best suited? Okay. Well, the idea is that this is analyzing structure, and the idea is that anything that can be represented as a graph. Um, can be uh, analyzed by means of the – that is very, very general because anything you represent in logic of any kind or in a database, because as I illustrated with the mapping from the relational database into a conceptual graph, you can take any data from a uh, uh, relational database and map it into a graph. That uh, For each uh, tuple in your database, that is every row in the database, uh, rep is mapped into a relation with as many links as there are uh, elements in that tuple. So if you have uh, triples, if you have a uh, uh, a relation that has uh, a triadic relation with uh, three uh, columns in your relation in your table, then you have relations with one central node and then three links. If you have a database with uh, two columns then you have uh, a single relation with two links. And uh, then what you end up with is translating your entire relational database into a collection of graphs. If you have anything that represented in logic, uh, as, for example, we've been doing with the common logic, we've been mapping uh, the uh, anything represented in predicate calculus or in a frame or in RDF or OWL, any of that data can be represented into a conceptual graph. And so anything you represent in RDF, OWL, or whatever, you can find those uh, kinds of uh, relations. And now we were using this example. This was a real example. This was a major company that had this problem. And uh, it showed that you can take the data that was stored in a relational database. This, was, uh, their, this company had relational databases. They also had COBOL programs. They had JCL programs. And all of those programs were analyzed by uh, the parser that mapped them into conceptual graphs. And then it also had English uh, documentation. And there was also documentation, English comments, in the COBOL and programs and the JCL. And it was able to do uh, apply the analogies among all of those graphs. So you could use it for anything that you can represent in English or in your uh, or in your that I was just explaining. Uh, the, uh, Peter asked the question of uh, what kind of applications can you apply it to, and my general comment was anything in a database or logic or OWL or RDF, any of that, any data that was represented in any of those sources, including any data that's represented in unstructured English and other languages, could be uh, handled by this. And uh, I was asking if you have any further comments about applications that, uh, uh, that you might want to discuss. What kind of applications? Uh, it, 
Yeah, in fact, um, we had applied this to a very large telco as well, but um, because the specifics of that and the particular contracting had significant NDA covenants, it's hard for us to share that, but we did apply this successfully to a very, very large telco, and more recently, we're looking at uh, applying this to a um, global uh, banking infrastructure um, for, um, again, the same process of legacy reengineering. Um, we're also looking at, um, we started to develop some work in the um, oil industry um, where you can look at continuous maps. Um, these are maps where you have sort of global information and then you create graphs based on those maps. So, for example, you can have thermal maps, you can have uh, convection current maps, you can have um, maps from the ocean. And these are all continuous maps, and what you do is create what are called read graphs to the critical points, and then those graphs become the things that you work with and analogize across uh, in different domains. So the, the applications are quite wide. Did, did that answer the? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And I, I have got three people lined up. Uh, we start with Juan Cicada, and then uh, the person from the area code 571, and after that, uh, someone from 301 area code uh, with this number ending uh, 5477. Uh, so Juan, uh, could you press the star three and unmute yourself? Seems like you might be introducing some echo. Yes, Hello, Peter. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, my name is Juan Cicada. I'm from the University of Texas at Austin. And it's really interesting what I've been listening to. I've especially liked the slide 15 and 16, uh, the way that you use the conceptual graphs. And I'm wondering what work has been done using these conceptual graphs to map ontologies and for mapping between ontologies and relational databases. And if so, uh, could your current system do these mappings? And also wondering, is your system public? Can, can this be used? And my last question is, sometimes there's a confusion between concept maps, topic maps, conceptual graphs, semantic nets. And I would, I would, I mean, I know you're an expert on this topic. And I would like to, love to know if you could give us a brief generalization on all of this. Thank you. Uh, okay. okay. Well, let's well, see. Let's to, to start. Somebody, somebody. Somebody has their uh, – could they mute the phone? Okay, fine, yeah, get rid of that echo. Okay, the point about uh, – let me start with the simple answer, and that is to relate concept maps to topic maps to conceptual graphs. There was a uh, paper that I had on this topic. Uh, this, these are slides from a uh, talk that I gave some time ago, and they're on my webpage. So why don't I just give you the uh, citation? It's uh, uh, it's uh, jfsoa.com, as in JF is in my initials, jfsoa.com. And, uh, oh, in fact, at the bottom of the conclusions, it gives you my, uh, it gives you my, uh, uh, may, uh, my website there. That's the three W's, uh, jfsoa.com slash pubs. Now, if you go, instead of saying pubs, go to talk, slash talks, slash. And on that, uh, there's a, uh, a talk called C mapping, C M A P P I N G dot, uh, I think that's a PDF, C mapping dot PDF, and you'll find there's a uh, file there that discusses concept mapping, topic mapping, and uh, conceptual graphs and their relationships. 
The general point is conceptual graphs are essentially a version of logic, so they have an exact mapping to and from predicate calculus. So it's uh, much more logic-oriented. However, you can use it as a superset of the uh, other kinds of notation. Now, uh, but what was the other point that uh, that was the concept mapping? Well, there was another point that you had a question about, uh, Juan? Yes, it's actually about uh, using the whole concept conceptual graphs for mappings between ontologies and mappings between a relational database to an ontology. Okay, okay. Yes, 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 right. right. That was, okay, could you, uh, okay, and the, and, the, and the point about that is that uh, it's very, uh, uh, that is something that we are still developing the software to do. It's the kind of software that we are apl applying it uh, since we are the developers and uh, uh, we can use this stuff but it's sort of like imagining uh, if you had a computer where all of the guts are taken out and the parts are all spread out on the table. It's not a shrink-wrapped software by any means. It's not the kind of thing that uh, anyone could apply off the shelf. It's the kind of stuff that we would be able to use if we sort of apply it, but not something that um, it would be uh, practical to distribute in any uh, practical way, although we certainly are intending to produce distributable software, but it's not really available now. Questions or comments? Uh, yeah, perfect. Thank uh, you very much. Just something to add to John's uh, note. Yes, what? Uh, when we were working in health, um, we had to between the Oracle and IBM uh, databases, so we did uh, develop a, um, a dual uh, VAE system uh, and building a common base to ensure that um, we can we, we could remap. Because when telcos, of course, buy other telcos and merge, uh, at some levels you have to reconcile some of the differences. Um, and particularly in what's called order configuration management. Uh, I won't get into that, but, but there is a specific ontology uh, that one telco uses that another. So that has been done uh, in a limited scale with, yeah. with Oracle and IBM databases. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Uh, it's the person from area code 571, if you could uh, do a star 3 on your phone pad and start uh, saying something, uh, then go ahead. 571, person. No? Hello? Yes. Uh, is that John? Yeah, this is me. This is John. Okay, well, maybe we should go to the other person. Then the next person from 301 uh, with the number ending in 5477. Uh, uh, Terry Longstreth. I'm the 301 area code person. Okay, great. Go ahead, Terry. Uh, John, I wanted to ask, or, or uh, John or Aaron, the, the, uh, the, the examples you've given uh, sound like somewhat ephemeral products that you use your – you use your mapping to uh, to generate, you know, an, an, another end product. Have you actually worked in uh, in and maybe this you've already answered this, but I, it was the idea that that the uh, 
the result of this uh, action can be integrated with the with the knowledge base of the company on a permanent basis. That is definitely a very desirable thing to do. And uh, one thing that I would mention is that uh, for the that early application, this was done several years ago. That that was the legacy reengineering case. The uh, company deliver- wanted what they wanted were the uh, UML diagrams, and they wanted the uh, data dictionary, and they wanted the glossary uh, in a form that they could use for so that their programmers could continue doing that. And that is the uh, result that was generated. That took one week to uh, translate from the internal conceptual graph representations into those formats. And uh, the company, essentially, they were very happy with it because they had their, they effectively, in eight weeks' time, their entire 40-year history of their software was all analyzed and uh, encoded in uh, this one CD-ROM. And, uh, you know, there was certainly a lot more work that their programmers needed to do but at least they now had a map of all of the programs that they had, a complete glossary of all of the data and all the terminology and has and the way it involved over the years. Now, as far as uh, producing output for formats that go into things, we definitely want to do that. And again, as I said, we are just a small company, and uh, what we are doing, we, the projects we work on are driven by whoever pays us, and what they are asking us to do. Now, what we're doing is developing our own technology in our own way, but the output that we generate, we have to tailor to whatever our customer wants. But um, for the long term, you know, these are things that we're, we very definitely hope to do in the long term, and we would like to produce packages that will produce this data in very, very standardized way that uh, the whole world can use. On the other hand, uh, producing that is the long-term project, and uh, meanwhile, to pay the rent, we're getting short-term contracts that uh, help us uh, keep in, uh, keep body and soul together. And Aaron, can you say anything on this? Hello, Aaron. Sure. Um, for, for example, with the first, uh, with the legacy reengineering, the uh, modeling faults were delivered in Popkin System Architect, and then Popkin System Architect was used to refactor and rebuild uh, the business process uh, for the corporation. In terms of the telco, the system used was Enterprise Architect, and all the results were delivered. um, And um, there is some slide, uh, there is an explanation of this uh, for what we did for the Ontolog uh, a while back, and there's, there's, you can look up some of our old uh, presentations on that. And then more recently for for the, for the other kinds of customers, they have uh, tools like uh, IBM's Rational, the Rational System, and Unisys Rational's uh, UML system, so fairly large uh, industry tools. But the work always involves us custom tailoring uh, in, a, in a service-oriented contract the elements for the customer. So the customer is not dependent on our system when we leave. Yeah, uh, does, that, does that help answer? The- uh, yeah, uh, you, yeah. So you, you, you've addressed you've addressed the topic a little bit. I'm, I'm really wondering if anybody's actually thought of or is working towards integrating this into the continuing day-to-day business processes of the company, so that the next COBOL program that's written is automatically incorporated in this knowledge base that you've built. We would love to do that, and. Uh, uh, 
for one thing is we're still a small company, and uh, we are still working on a uh, day-to-day basis depending on who pays us and what they ask us to do. But we're continuing developing our underlying technology as we go along. And, uh, hey, you know, if we got a contract to do that, that would certainly focus our attention, as they say, that uh, money helps to focus the mind wonderfully. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's try to find out if the person from 571 uh, uh, has managed to, to his phone unmuted. Five, the person from 571? Press C, uh, asterisk 3 to unmute the phone. Right. Asterisk, yes, star 3, 571 with the number ending in 5375. No. Uh, in the meantime, I wanted to let everyone know that I've added John's link uh, for uh, concept mapping to the, for his concept mapping paper to the session page. So it's under the uh, uh, the one of the bullets on resources now. Uh, we also have a question uh, that is typed in from our friends from India uh, who probably doesn't have a very good voice line. But uh, on the chat session, uh, I have uh, Apilash uh, asking the question, uh, could you tell a little more about Intellix Parser? Uh, you okay, use to generate the concept graphs. Okay, the Intellitex Parser is actually a very simple uh, parser that generates a, an analyzer that generates conceptual graphs. And it's, uh, it's one that was developed uh, some years ago, and uh, we do intend to rewrite it and revise it. But it still is a fairly decent one. Uh, maybe Aaron can can you say a little bit more about that? Um, the 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 two ontologies that we use in, in as the knowledge sources were Roger's thesaurus and WordNet, and we basically wrote a leak grammar style parser. So we did not use uh, David Temperley's and Daniel Sleeper's link grammar, but we built essentially uh, something very similar. Uh, it's a dependency, three word order dependency parser, and it does shallow parsing at very, very high speed. So we were more interested in having a method to convert some text into graphs and then work from there on the invariance across the graphs for the, for the analogy making. So our focus wasn't on understanding the deep semantics of every word as it was on gathering as many graphs as we could and then relating those to what we found in COBOL or JC. Okay, I hope that helps answer the question that's posed uh, by our friends from India. Uh, let's go look at the, if we have more hands up. I, mean, I still have this hand from the 571 number, uh, if you you, you are definitely still online. Uh, evidently, we can't hear you. Uh, if you un- try to unmute yourself, or maybe let me try to unmute you, uh, uh, please try to speak up. 
Can you say something? No. Okay, you're active now. A uh, person from 571 uh, who had his hands up a little earlier, uh, could you say something and then uh, ask? No. Uh, okay, looks like we have a bit of difficulties there. Uh, let me pass the uh, baton back to Susie. Uh, Susie? Hi. Uh, um, it, it seems like that was um, um, a really interesting session in terms of presentation and also very interesting Q&A at the end. So um, I, I guess um, we've uh, finished the, the session for today. And uh, thank you very much, everybody, for participating. And uh, I look forward to getting back in touch again shortly for, for the next in the, the series on uh, databases and ontology. Thank you, Susie. And uh, thank you, John and Aaron. And shortly after the end of this call, uh, I'll be posting information about the telephone playback uh, for, for anyone who had missed the call time and wanted to sort of listen through this talk. And then uh, within uh, a day, I will be posting the MP3 archive. Will be uh, podcasting this entire recording of the session from uh, John's brilliant presentation to uh, the discussion uh, that followed. So uh, once again, thank you very much, John, for this great okay. talk, and uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, okay. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the uh, effort. Thanks. Bye. Right. We adjourn the session now. Thanks, everyone.